Hey, a few things before we enter into the text together. I want to just thank you. Uh, some of you were physically here. A lot of you were praying. And uh, particularly want to always say thank you more than I do to Shannon Thompson, um, our church assistant. But we had a, just a great preaching workshop on Thursday here at the church. This room, obviously, some of you helped break it down last Sunday. It's been turned back into our purpose, uh, our need for it in a, the setting here. But we just... We had a great time with about 30, 35 pastors from across our region. When I met the first individual that walked into the preaching workshop, he came from, I think, Moorhead, North Carolina or something like that. On the, he just found the workshop online and said, I'm so thankful that one of the Charles Simeon Trust preaching workshops is going to be drivable. And so, uh, you know, we were praying for more than 30 so we could justify that we would be a church that could host this for many years to come. But I tell you what. The guys that came benefited from it, and I just want to thank you for the role that you played in that. Um, another little announcement here. I'm going to take a couple weeks out of the pulpit after today. Uh, my family, I'll be in town physically this week. I've got a lot of meetings with a lot of you, so you know that. But then we're going to take a vacation over next weekend and then through uh, the Thanksgiving week. And so just want you to know I'll be away. AJ's going to preach next Lord's Day, carrying on in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And then, well, I'll be back on the 28th. We're going to have a guest preacher who's a church planter in the PCA in Morristown. And so we won't do 1 Samuel in two weeks from now. I'll be back and thankful to be worshiping with you, but uh, we're going to have Chris Talley uh, come to preach here. And so just a few week break for me. Um, this is week 11 in 1 Samuel. I'm thankful that we've just kept plotting. As I think I mentioned last week, we're going to slow down and not just do massive chunks as much as we're able to find the division in the passage so that we can understand it better and uh, just really savor the things that God would teach us in his word and not just try to preach the book as fast as we possibly can. Uh, and so I think you'll find that breaking up chapter 10 here is a good division. And so let me pray, and then we'll jump into the scriptures together. Father, I ask that you'd help us now in our time in your word just to, again, to be grown by your Holy Spirit. Would you convict us? Would you apply this text to our lives? Most of all, would you help us see Jesus, the anointed one, who alone could fulfill the requirement of your servant king that you would set in place for the rescue of your people? Help us to see ourselves in it too, to understand what that would mean for us if we had the perfect king to follow, which we do by grace through faith alone right now. And so just ask you to help us to see the similarities of the anointing of Saul and the anointing of Jesus, but also the very, very different, different nature of Christ our king. So we ask for help this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think with me about your resume Maybe, maybe some of you have recently reworked your resume or your CV. Anybody know what CV stands for? It's Latin. Yeah, I don't know how to say it, so you said it. Good, yeah. Curriculum Vitae, I think. Uh, it's Latin for course of one's life. A document, a short account of one's career and qualifications. Let me ask you this. Have you ever customized your resume or customized your CV so that you would be able to show that you are uniquely equipped for a unique position? I'd highly recommend it if you never customize your resume. Using the semantics, using the measurables that may be uh, good indicators for that particular industry or job to say, no, I have experience that justifies you considering me as your top candidate for this position. Now, why would I start this sermon with that illustration? Well, here's why. Um, that is not what is happening in this passage at all. The, the man Saul... He does not know that there is a job opportunity in Israel. 
He does not know about the crisis of the people's request to Samuel that God would give them a king. He has no clue of that. He does not work to customize his first impression or to write a resume that will cause Samuel the prophet to think, now there's the top candidate. He does not consider or hope for how great it might be to have Samuel be his supervisor. And he really hopes he gets the job. That is not what's happening in this passage. If I go back to last week, for those of you here, you recall with us that Saul has no idea what is going on. He has no clue. He's been searching for donkeys. His father sent him out to find lost donkeys. And before that search is over, he finds himself the guest of honor at a feast with a table that had been prepared for him beforehand. Then he sleeps at Samuel's house. And the next morning, Samuel the prophet pulls him aside privately and says, we need to talk. And so that's where our passage picks up. Saul is about to find out the word that God has for him. So would you stand with me and let's read the first 16 verses together. They're printed for you in your insert should you have need. Saul's anointed king. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him. And he said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will meet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there's a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre before them prophesying. And then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. You will prophesy with them and you will be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. For God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who's their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he'd finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said to him, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So 
What happens next is Saul, the son of Kish, becomes Saul, the anointed one. I just want you to imagine with me the dramatic nature of this moment. Uh, This young man just finished sleeping at a house. He's unfamiliar. He's woken up, told to get on the road. The prophet pulls him aside and said, we need to talk privately. And then the great prophet pours oil on his head and kisses him. What is going on? And he says, the Lord has anointed you as prince. This is the first Saul has heard of this. I think sometimes our tendency to read, read the scriptures is just to try to understand what's in it, the big, the big truth or something. Yes, we definitely need to ask for God's help. But let's just slow down and be like, this is the first this young man has heard of the, of the calling God has on his life. And he's just got oil dripping off of his face. He's been kissed by the great prophet after being the guest of honor the night before. He's called a prince. Remember, we said last week that in Hebrew, it's not necessarily a regal term. It can just mean leader. This is new news. You're going to be God's leader, God's prince over God's heritage. That's the word at the end of verse 10. A heritage is an undisputed possession that cannot be transferred to another. So see, God's not giving up his ownership of his people just because he's appointing Saul to be a servant. In fact, if anything, God is giving his people a leader and his job description for what that leader ought to do because these are his people. Now, we mentioned last week, we said there's there's this collision coming, right? The, The collision we talked about last week was we know this young boy looking for the donkeys. His name means asked for, Saul. And Samuel is the one that the people asked for a king from. And so all of chapter 9, we're like, these guys are going to intersect soon. So we knew that collision was coming. We already know the collision has begun to happen and will happen more when God's being the king of kings is going to collide with the people's desire for a king. But, but understand, there's another collision we should see coming. The people asked God for a king. And the one they asked for, God told him that he would be just a prince. So if he would do what God ordained for him to do, then you've got to anticipate there's going to be a collision between the will of the people and the calling of the servant, if he will be faithful to what God has called him to. It's a private anointing. The public presentation, we'll look at that next week. But it's not real obscure what's going on. It's not secret in the sense of Samuel's not whispering to him. And there's no, nothing lost in the translation of a mumbling prophet. It's pretty clear what Saul's supposed to do. Saul is supposed to do two things. You're going to reign over my people, God says, and you're going to rescue my people. That's it. Those two things are your job description. And God says, through Samuel, I'm going to give you some signs today to prove to you that this is my call on your life. And so when you leave here, three things are going to happen. Verse 2, you're going to run into two men at Rachel's tomb who will tell you that the donkeys are fine. Don't worry about the donkeys. In fact, you need to go home because your father's anxious for you. If you remember last week, that's exactly what Saul said in verse 5 to his servant. He said, we better go home. Dad's going to be anxious for me and not care about the donkeys. Verbatim, these men say the same thing to him. Now, why why is Rachel's tomb significant? Let me just share share this with you. I, I think what we're seeing is Saul's calling in his future role as prince is directly linked to God's faithfulness in the past. That's why Rachel's tomb is mentioned. Rachel, do you know who she is? She's Jacob's second wife. She's the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And Saul is a Benjaminite. And so this location takes us all the way back to Genesis 35, where God made glorious promises to his people. 
So Saul's calling as prince in the future is directly linked to the heritage of God's people and God's faithfulness in the past. That's the first sign. After that, verse 3 and 4, you're going to come to the oak of Tabor, and you're going to meet three men who are carrying goats, bread, and wine, all the items needed for a sacrifice, and then they're going to give you two loaves of bread. That should take us back to chapter 9 also, because remember, Saul said to his servant, like, we don't even have bread to give Samuel when we go see him. Now these men are like, here's your bread. Now you have bread. And these men, these three men are going up to Bethel, which means house of God. You know where Bethel is? That's where Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis 32, where God reiterated to Jacob that I'm going to make a people. And I'm a God who keeps promise. I'm going to have my presence be with you and I'm going to give you a place. So Saul's calling is directly linked to God's past faithfulness. And then lastly, Samuel says, you're going to go to a place very close to home. You'll get to Gibeath. Elohim, which literally means hill of God. And at Gibeah, Elohim, you're going to find a garrison of the Philistines there. That's problematic, isn't it? You're quite a ways into the land near your hometown. And as you get there, you're going to see the enemy's army. After this, you're going to see a group of prophets. They won't, they'll be hard to miss. They'll be singing and dancing and doing their thing. And then Saul, you're going to prophesy with them. And the Spirit of God's going to rush on you, and you're going to become another man. At that time, what you should do is do whatever your hand finds to do. And then after you do what your hand finds to do, then go up to Gilgal. Wait on me, about seven days. And when I come to do an offering with you, I will tell you what you are to do next. So this is what Samuel tells Saul. And we read in verse 9 that all these things came to pass on that day, making it very clear this is God's word for Saul's life. I want you to think about how powerful it would be to have all those things come true. Just boom, boom, boom. But I think what's even more profound for us is not that those words come true in Saul's circumstances around him. What happens inside of him? That's where this text takes us. And so you read in verse 10, the spirit of the Lord did rush upon him. He did become another man. In that moment, we read in verse 9 that when he turned to go away from Samuel, boom, God gave him another heart. Now, what in the world is going on here? If we know from chapter 8 that the king the people are going to ask for is going to be the means by which God judges his people. So you're asking for a king is going to be the way you show that you've rejected me as king. What are we to make when we read here that Saul gets a new heart? Is this the the heart conversion of Saul or is this more like sort of an equipping by the spirit for a role that Saul's supposed to play? Which is it? Let's think about this conversion from death to life, spiritually speaking. I, I mentioned Ezekiel 36 earlier in the service. You remember that, that prophecy, the, the new covenant prophecy where Ezekiel gives a vision and, 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 and God says this, it's not for your sake, people, that I'm going to do this. I won't do this for, for your sake. I'm going to do it for the sake of my name. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone. I'm going to make it a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to obey my rules. Do you think that's what's happening in the heart of Saul here? Is he being converted for a life of seeing God as the rescuing king and being God's servant in God's economy of rescues? Is that what's going on? I'll just be direct. I don't think that's what's happening because Saul is going to end his life apostate. Saul is going to end his life under the wrath of God as one who's fully re- rejected God, as God and God is going to reject him. That's where the book is going. So if, 
If it's not his conversion in the sense of salvation, what in the world is going on here? I think the best thing we can liken it to is Judges chapter 14. Remember Samson? When he had this strength that just, he was raised up for a purpose to fulfill God's plan for that moment to defeat the enemy. And you know what Judges 14 says about Samson? It says that when Samson did what he did, the spirit of God rushed upon Samson so Samson could be the judge God ordained him to be in that moment. Seems to me that's probably more or less what the scriptures is saying happened in the life of Saul. But here's the important principle for you and me. In private, in preparation by the word of God, Saul was given exactly what was needed for him to fulfill God's purpose for his life. In private, in preparation by the word of God, Saul was given exactly what he needed to fulfill the command that God would put on his life. In other words, if the servant of God would do anything for God in the kingdom of God, then God must first do his great work in their hearts so they would be a servant of God. So let's not let the complication of Saul's demise and his eventual apostasy confuse us in this. You and I, when we read something like this, we should say, Lord, everything flows out of my heart and I need for you to do a new work in my heart because apart from you doing a work in my heart, I can do nothing for you. Nothing whatsoever. So we think of Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 5 that those in whom God works, we become a new creation. And Paul says, all of this is from God. You become a new creation. You didn't manufacture it yourself. You serve God and his purpose for his glory and for the good of his people in his world that he's redeeming. You don't do that without him working in you first. That's the principle that we have here. AJ mentioned it in our confession time. It's what Jesus said. Jesus says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of the good of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil of his heart produces evil, for out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, actions come. The heart's the seat of who we are. It's our affections. And so one of the lessons in this for us is internal heart change by God's grace and God's initiative must happen. Servant of God, husbands, wives, fathers, children, do you ask God, God, do a work in my heart so that I'll desire to obey you? If that's true for us, question, how much more true is it for the Lord's prince that God would have to work in his heart? Think about all that the people needed, right? They had rejected God by their request. They had sin in their heart that needed restraint. Did they not need a leader who had experienced God's work in his heart first? I do have a note, and there's a handful of pastors in this room, but I, my note to myself is, say it again, pastor. Do not the people of God, who, who need their sin restrained by the Holy Spirit, who reject God all the time by wanting other things to be our substitute leader, need leaders who've had God work in our hearts? Think of Paul in Romans 7, his posture. The Apostle Paul had this glorious posture where he was never trying to give away what he didn't have happening in his own life. Right? So, so Paul in Romans 7 says, basically, I'm going to put my heart on display for everyone. I'm tired of having a heart that, that doesn't do what I know I must do to glorify God. And he gets so frustrated and Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. I hope that 
we see, especially I'm thinking for myself as a husband, a father, and a pastor, but I, I would ask you in any role you have, do you, do you see and do you believe that God has to be doing a new work in your heart first before he would use you in the place he's put you, period? And what kind of leader should we want to follow but those who have that humble, but by the grace of God, countenance, which we know the Apostle Paul had. Now, Saul doesn't have that countenance, as we will see. Well, what's the result of this anointing? Let's move on in the story. I'll just say this. The result is very visible. So look in verse 11. Local people see this weird scene and they see that Saul has changed and they say, what happened to the son of Kish? Like, what, is he a prophet now? Like he left looking for donkeys, just a farm boy. And he comes back like a band boy with the prophets. I mean, what's going on with Saul? One man speaks up and says, Who's his father? This is like the original, who's your daddy? Who's his father? Is he one of the prophets now? It became a proverb. In other words, it's like saying, you know, is Saul a prophet now? Wonders never cease. Stranger things have happened. Saul's a prophet now. Understand, the reason they say this is because that's the only change they saw in Saul. That's the important point to take home. It's the main thing they saw that was different about him. Is he came back in a group of prophets acting super charismatic and very different than the farm boy that left. Now, we have to ask the question, if, if that's all that they see, and then we read that Saul did that and then left to go to Gilgal to wait on Samuel, is there something missing that Saul doesn't do? And that's the important part of our passage. Go back to chapter 10, verse 5. Samuel says, when you get to Gibeath Elohim, you'll find a garrison of the Philistines. You're going to hang out with some prophets, and then the Spirit of God's going to come upon you. Verse 7, once the Spirit of God is upon you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now, what do you think that means? Does that mean when you're there, do, just you're free to do what you want? Do what you want? No, it doesn't mean that. It's probably more akin to do what you were described to be the one to do. Chapter 9, verse 16, be the prince who would rescue God's people from their enemies. And Saul, guess what? The enemy's right there. They're right there. Do what your hand finds to do with the spirit of God having made you into a new man, with God himself being with you. Do what you were anointed to do. Act, Saul, against the enemies of Israel, Saul, that are right next to your hometown, Saul, so that when you do what God's called you to do, people don't say, is Saul a prophet now? Rather, they say, what a great king that we have, that he raised up a, a man like Saul who knew the enemy was that close and defeated them so gloriously. We will give the king our praise, our loyalty. He sent Saul to be a leader to rescue us. But that's not what they say. Now, there's another part in the Old Testament in the book of Judges where this description, do what your hand finds to do, is in the story. It's in Judges chapter 9, and you have this really kind of unknown ruler, insignificant, tells Abimelech, who's not a good guy, but he tells Abimelech, he says, do what your hand finds to do. And you know what Abimelech does the next morning? He gets up and plans an ambush and destroys his enemy. Do what your hand finds to do does not mean, hey, Saul, after you've spoken kind of in a weird way with a group of guys, go, go wait for Samuel at Gilgal. No, Saul, you missed something. He was supposed to be like a samurai warrior against God's enemies. 
Forgive the movie illustration. I don't do very many of those. I think of Black Panther here. You've been anointed and you have a power to do what only you can do. You didn't do anything. He was supposed to go to Gilgal. Do you know what Gilgal is? Gilgal is the first place the people rested after they're wandering in the wilderness. It's the first place they rested in the promised land. In Joshua 5 verse 9, the name Gilgal means to roll. The Lord has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. What a perfect place for Saul to have gone right after he defeated the garrison of the Philistine, if he would have. Instead, people are just saying, who's his daddy? So on his way to Gilgal, he runs into his uncle and his uncle says, Saul, where have you been? He says, oh, I've been looking for dad's donkeys. We couldn't find them, so we went to Samuel the prophet. And then Saul's uncle says, Saul, son, nephew, boy, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Why would he say such a direct statement? Saul, please, please tell me what the prophet said to you. Do you think there's a chance that Saul's uncle knows about the crisis in Israel and knows about the request to Samuel about a leader and knows that Samuel alone is the one who's going to fulfill the people's request? Please tell me what Samuel said to you. I think there's actually a hint in the Hebrew. You can't see it in English, but this is amazing to me. In Hebrew, when Samuel's, I mean, Saul's uncle says, please tell me what he said to you, the verb tell is the verb form of the word prince when Saul's given the title prince. And then Saul says, Samuel told us plainly that the donkeys have been found. The told plainly is a double connection of that verb that is the same word form from which the word leader or prince comes. It's almost like the Bible's giving us a hint here. Saul knew who he was anointed to be. He knew what he was anointed to do. And he knew he had not done it. And so he said nothing to his uncle about the matter of the kingdom. And he disobeyed the prophet by just going to wait at Gilgal. I want you to let this start to kind of overlay our life. Are there things in your life that you, you know who you've been called to be? You, you, you profess faith in Jesus. You're a Christian. You know who Christ is. You know who you're called to be. You know what you're called to do. Obey God's law. Repent of sin. Don't act like you live in your own little kingdom with you as the king. Ask for forgiveness when you see that you violated God's holy. You know what to do. What do you do when you realize that you're not doing it? And you haven't done it. There's all sorts of responses, aren't there? I know some people that run away and hide in shame and they just, if they can just self-loathe enough, they can get past the moment. Others turn into really grumpy, angry people that attack everyone else around them because they're worse than I feel. There's any number of responses we can do, but here's where I want to turn this morning. When we know that's true of us, where we know who we've been called to be saved, to be. We know what we're commanded to do as servants who obey God's word and turn to him in Christ. If we catch ourselves not being that, what do we need but a king who will fulfill what 
Saul didn't do who is the true anointed one. We need to be the people who have a better king. And that's what we're going to kind of culminate and conclude things this morning. I want you to look in your bulletin if you, if you have that. We printed out Matthew 3. There are some parallelisms between Jesus' anointing and Saul's anointing. Major contrasts as well. But that's how we're going to conclude before we take the Lord's Supper. So this may feel a little theological, a little parallel, a little typology here, but I want you to see it. When John the Baptist came and he prepared the way, he had a baptism of repentance, right? And Jesus came to him and says, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, I can't baptize you. And Jesus said, no, you must baptize me. Let's just see some of the parallels because Jesus' baptism, when the Holy Spirit came down on him, was his anointing, okay? It's his earthly anointing. What happened at Jesus' anointing that's similar to Saul's? Well, we have a voice from heaven, from God, giving a word of identity to his son. This is my son. See a little of the parallel there? First thing Samuel says to Saul is, you are God's prince. You have an identity that God is anointing you to have. Jesus was announced, this is my son. Saul was going to have to know who he was to fulfill God's command on his life. Jesus was going to have to know exactly who he was to fulfill the cost of what it would be to be the Savior. Well, what must Jesus do? Well, what I find interesting is, is in and around Jesus' anointing there in Matthew chapter 3, we have the same sort of descriptions of what Saul was called to do. Reign over and restrain God's people as well as rescue his people from the enemy. And so let me show you where I think in Jesus' baptism... His anointing, you have him reigning over and representing and being the ruler of God's people. So you see that Jesus looks to John the Baptist and says, no, you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance because he wasn't going to sin. Why would Jesus be baptized? Because he was going to be the one who would represent all of God's people and reign over God's people as their representative. And he would even substitute himself to be the one who would bear the cost of our not being able to restrain our sin, but he would restrain himself from sin. He'd be the righteous one. He would fulfill all righteousness actively and passively, if you want to use theological terms. What else happened at Jesus' baptism? Well, we know that the Spirit poured out and came down on Jesus. This guy just opened up, and he had this anointing by God's Holy Spirit. For what purpose? To be the anointed one he was supposed to be to reign over God's people and to rescue God's people. And what does the Holy Spirit do right after the anointing of Jesus? We read that the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And what does Jesus have to do immediately? Fight the enemy. Kind of like Saul got anointed. And hey, what are the Philistines doing here? What am I supposed to do? Jesus is anointed and the Spirit drives him to be in immediate combat with the prince of this world. Spirits on Jesus. The enemy's going to attack Jesus. What did the enemy say to Jesus? Satan tried to tempt Jesus, just like in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Three things. Satan tried to get Jesus to not deny his identity. Does your father really love you? Are you sure you're who he said he is, you, that you are? Satan tried to get Jesus to doubt God's word. Will he really save you? Will he really keep his promise to you? Satan tried to get Jesus to shortchange and circumvent his path to kingdom ownership. I'll, I'll give you all these things if you just worship me. And Jesus says, no, buddy, it's, it's all mine anyway. 
Then what did Jesus do after that? He did what Saul failed to do. He spoke the word of the kingdom. Saul, after all of this, says not a word of the kingdom to his uncle. And what does Jesus do both in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4? Right after he's tempted, he immediately goes and he proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And both in Luke's account and in Matthew's account, Jesus, in, he's in a public place of worship. And he reads from the old covenant, reads from Isaiah. He says, this is fulfilled today in your presence. I'm the rescuer. And you know what happens in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, after Jesus comes on the scene as the anointed one of God who speaks of God's kingdom? You know what they said? Let me read it to you. Luke 4, 22. Everyone spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not the son of Kish? This crazy, mumbling, prophet boy band Saul guy? Is that it? No, then, yes, that is Kish's son. Actually, kind of weird. I wonder what happened to him. Is this not Joseph's son? What's the answer to that question? Technically. No. Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This isn't technically Joseph's son. This is God's son. This is God's king, who is the only one who has a CV a resume that can be customized to declare, I have the experience and the identity and the role to fulfill exactly what the job description requires. So I'm going to just pan out to the Lord's Supper. People of God, we have an anointed king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will reign. He reigns now by grace through faith alone, and he will reign forever. And we ought not be afraid of death. We ought not be afraid of sickness. We ought not be afraid of political regimes. We not ought be afraid of anything because he has already, from the moment he was anointed, battled the prince of this world for our rescue. And he knows who he is. He's the first fruits of our resurrection. Do you believe that? He's the one who bore the wrath of God, so you have no wrath of God yet to be born. Do you believe that? He's the one whom the Spirit got poured out, but he said, when I go to the Father, I'm going to pour that Spirit out on you so that you'll have power to fight against the enemy with me. Do you believe that? And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, folks, we're the servants who have the anointed king as our king. And we need God to do his first work in our heart if we would believe any of it. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to believe in Jesus, the anointed one, as our king, as your chosen one who alone can fulfill the requirement of what your people would need in your kingdom. Would we be servants who speak a word of your kingdom to everyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that we have? Why aren't you afraid? Why aren't you swept away by slander about this and that? Why aren't you angry all the time? Why aren't you discouraged? Would we be people who can say that we have Jesus as our king? That's why. And we are witnesses of him being the anointed one. And as Jesus told his disciples, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you. You know who I am. When we stand in a world around us and the secret of the kingdom is not known by all, will we be your servants who are ready and desirous to to just give reason 
as we participate in our workplaces and as we participate in social settings or extracurriculars or sports or music or wherever we go, would we still be a people who aren't so dictated by that? But the world around us doesn't understand that we have some peace and shalom that passes all understanding because our Savior from first to finished is the anointed one who's battled the enemy and will complete it. And so as we now take the Lord's Supper, mindful again that, Jesus, you suffered the curse of death for sin. You were resurrected and given us now the power of life. Would we proclaim it anew that it's what we rest on. It anchors our faith. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.